electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Carl Quintanilla. You're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Tuesday morning. Welcome to a big hour of Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with John Fort. And Julia Borston today, the Internet's third rail and the stock dividing Wall Street. Jason Calacanis joins us for a debate on whether Facebook is investable here. Then what's today's better opportunity in tech? Both Square and Airbnb getting some upgrades, but which one belongs in your portfolio? Later, Piper uh, got some new money ideas in the cloud. Some bull cases on Salesforce, Twilio and Coupa this hour. Julia. But we're going to start with Facebook. The stock is down more than 2% today, now down 16% since the start of September and one of the biggest laggards on the Nasdaq 100 this morning. And there's been a fire report just out from Bernstein. It calls the stock, quote, the Internet's third rail, posing the question, is Facebook investable? The analyst behind that note is Mark Schmulik, who joins us now. Mark, thanks for talking to us today. Now, you have a buy rating on Facebook, despite laying out all of these various challenges, including challenges targeting advertising, regulatory overhang. Why do you have a buy rating on this stock? Yeah, um, you know, there's certainly a lot going on with, uh, you know, with, with Facebook right now. And it's one of those kind of emotional topics, kind of just like religion and politics. And, you know, aside from, I guess, a lot of the, the rhetoric around the name, there, there's obviously a lot of fundamental questions with the IDFA impact coming in this quarter, um, regulatory overhang, engagement questions. Um, you know, why I continue to like it is despite all of the noise, as we look ahead into 22, um, there's actually a lot to like about this story. User engagement is actually quite strong. Advertisers continue to stick around and invest, and we have many new initiatives coming online next year, particularly shops, uh, which should start monetizing in July of next year, which really gives the story a leg up once we get past this kind of negative media cycle that we're in today. Well, Mark, certainly there have been negative media cycles in the past, but there is a question about whether this whistleblower meeting with the oversight board could really force major changes in terms of the way Facebook works and and its ability to monetize its users. Do you consider that a real risk now? Um, You know, I I don't. Uh, I'm still waiting for details on what some of these larger changes might actually look like, because at the moment, you know, it's mostly about levying lots of complaints uh, against the company, but not much discussion has really been spent around what resolution looks like. Uh, and we look at kind of at the, the fundamentals that matter. Uh, Facebook's investing uh, in moderation more than any other company in the space. Uh, it certainly put the oversight board there to begin with. It doesn't want to be in the moderation business. Uh, it, it certainly continues to push the privacy bar on, uh, on advertising. There's talk about introducing new ad product that's effectively privacy first. Um, so to me, you know, when I look at it from an investor lens, um, you know, engagement is strong. They're, they're really kind of trying to cater to advertisers. And when I look at much of, uh, you know, kind of the complaints levied against Facebook, they don't appear to be Facebook issues. Uh, they're social media or Internet issues more broadly. Uh, you know, and, and so when I look at actually what can actually change 
uh, with regards to some of the proposed about breakup, etc., cetera, uh, Facebook actually quiet, uh, quietly kind of filed to dismiss really the only antitrust suit that's on the table, which is the FTC suit against them, uh, that I would actually argue is quite weak. So, so kind of from a pure fundamental basis, you know, I, I don't see actually a lot of risk in the midterm. Interesting. Uh, as uh, it is down to 317, certainly something's getting priced in. Mark, stay with us. We want to bring in angel investor Jason Calacanis of Inside.com, uh, talk about his thesis around Facebook. And, and Jason, I'll just start with you and ask you whether or not you think it's investable. Uh, thanks for having me, Carl. Nice to see you, John and Julia. Um, you know, we, we've got a long history in this company of getting penalties and the company growing. So if you're looking at historically, Absolutely. Buy the stock when bad news comes up because it's gone from 50 to 100. And now, you know, it uh, peaked at, I think, a trillion, just over a trillion dollar valuation. So historically, that's correct. So now what we have to wonder is, is this the, um, you know, the straw on the camel's back here? Because there is something about kids uh, and body dysmorphia issues. And, you know, this research that feels qualitatively different this time. Uh, Cambridge Analytica, a little hard to understand. The Beacon uh, penalty they got, you know, back in, what was that, 2012? That was, you know, ages ago. But even the $5 billion fine they got in 2019, none of this has changed their behavior. Uh, but this one feels different. And I, I think if you look at the proposals they're putting up of how to deal with it, those also seem uh, different. For the first time, we're hearing Facebook say things like, hey, maybe we'll age gate the service. Maybe we won't let certain ages here. Maybe we'll give parents control over their kids' accounts. Oh, my God, maybe we'll even put time limits on this thing. So uh, that could lead to headwinds. I, the death by distraction theory, I think, is, is the one with the most uh, credibility here of not to buy the stock. Right. Um, there's a moral reason not to buy the stock, but the distraction, this will be on management and recruiting. Uh, that's going to be really hard. And there's a generation of people, I think, who uh, maybe just don't want to work for this kind of company. Maybe, but they, they also seem to continue to be able to hire Zuckerberg's overall approval ratings as you know, seen in Glassdoor and places like that. Still relatively high. I, I want your take on probably based really, on the RSUs going up. If yeah, the RSUs I mean, are down and underwater, that could be different, right, John? We'll see. We'll see what happens there. Yeah. Maybe that today's not a good day. I, I want to ask you about it, yeah. what really sinks a company. Individual mistakes, it seems to me, aren't what tends to sink tech companies. It's more uh, the wrong ideas that permeate the way they hire, the way they build product, the way they roll out services. Thus far, up to this point, with M&A, with product design, even though you might take issue uh, with the results and the impact, Facebook has been right. Is there a signal that they're starting to be wrong? Yeah, I, I think the signal that they could be wrong is going to be reflected in the stock price, which we're seeing today. And the the way they've dealt with these issues has always been to brush them off. And, and let's face it, they've been very arrogant about it. They've basically, you know, send out PR people and they don't actually take meaningful steps. The meaningful steps here, you know, that we heard from the whistleblower were very, very moderate. Um, but this could be a Microsoft moment where, yeah, they can't be as aggressive buying companies. You know, we all saw what happened with Explorer and, and the entire antitrust there. You know, I think Bill Gates got burned out by it. Management got burned out by it. They were distracted. So if there is a thesis uh, to not buy the stock, I think the distraction thesis, the RSUs, you know, their, their restricted stock units becoming worth less and just having a hard time buying big, innovative things and hiring. And if you can't, if they didn't buy Instagram or WhatsApp, you know, we would be talking and referring to Facebook as something very different than how we talk about it today. So 
long term, you know, in the next couple of years, is the stock going to get crushed? I'm not so sure of that. I think this will take a long time to litigate. Um, but 10, 20 years from now, could this be a company that has a hard time buying other big companies and innovating? Sure. Yeah, that, that seems uh, quite, quite possible. Mark, you know, we could talk a lot about uh, whether or not you have a moral compunction against buying the shares or whether or not they're going to have a harder time recruiting. But in the end, isn't the only issue whether or not advertisers want to get placed uh, next to this content? And I wonder, I've, I've seen conflicting reports even today about whether advertisers are, in fact, pulling back on the margin. Yeah, look, I don't think it's the only thing that matters, certainly. I mean, that's how they built their business to date, but they're clearly looking to diversify into other parts of the business like e-commerce, like AR, VR, or metaverse, if we want to call it that. Um, you know, but but it's certainly, you know, if, if advertisers speak with their wallets, uh, that would absolutely have an impact on how we view the company and its near to midterm prospects. Uh, we've seen ad boycotts, not just on Facebook, but we had them, you know, last year on Facebook with regards to one of the Trump tweets where they where they chose not to moderate it. And we had that boycott uh, that really didn't have much of an impact. And I think when you're, you know, really the lifeline of customer acquisition for something like 11 million businesses, um, you know, they're not just going to switch that off uh, because of potentially moral issues. Now, you know, if, if it's certainly, you know, I, I look at also from an investor lens and investors need to make their own decisions on, you know, their moral values and whether Facebook fits. Uh, with that thesis or not, which I'm sure every advertiser goes through as well. But, you know, it, it's certainly something that matters. It's very important. Uh, but I wouldn't say it's the only thing. Yeah, Mark, it'll be interesting to see how the risk of a boycott layers in with the targeting concerns pegged to that Apple operating system change. But, Jason, I want to go back to you and I want to bring up something that your friend and fellow podcaster David Sachs <laughs> said on our air on Tech Check yesterday. He said that the focus on and the potential harm of Facebook's algorithm has been completely blown out of proportion and that the algorithm actually gives users more choice, not less. How do you respond to him? Yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, he's presenting a kind of false dichotomy here that like either we let it be a free speech free for all uh, or the government is taking it over. Right. I heard I heard the interview with my bestie Sachs. He was very positioned like, oh, we're just giving the government control. No, there's a lot of steps along the way here, like the age gating or parents uh, having control over their kids account. Maybe it's for 16 years and above. Maybe they have an hour a day on the service. Maybe the parents could set that. Those are all more likely than you know, the, the, the Congress uh, or the president is going to run Facebook. That's kind of silly, uh, all, all due respect to my bestie. Um, and so I, I, I think the algorithm is important to be disclosed. And I think that's where we're going to get to is, hey, listen, if the algorithm is and, and Facebook's best interest is to show you things that just basically go viral and go crazy. We all know that fake news uh, and charged topics do that. And even Facebook is saying that it does that and they wanna show you more of your friends and interests. And Twitter actually did that. Remember uh, just uh, in the past year, we've seen Twitter tell you, oh, you're into venture capital. Oh, you're into the Knicks. We'll show you more Knicks. We'll show you more venture capital. And, and we're all starting to see accounts maybe we don't follow that are more about our passions and interests as opposed to mm. polarized political stuff. And uh, you know, in terms of, just some little anecdotal evidence. We were sitting here two or three years ago saying Facebook was going to be the new money. They were going to be the new Bitcoin. They have this Libra project. And, you know, I, I think 
the distraction theory of like death by distraction, Libra is the perfect example. Where's Libra? When's the last time Zuckerberg took a, you know, discussed talking about taking over our monetary supply? I, I think the company is in the crosshairs and they've got such a spotlight on them. It's going to make them not make big, bold decisions. Uh, oh. You know, same thing yeah. you saw with Amazon and Microsoft. Is Amazon really going to buy a hundred billion dollar company? They tucked in Whole Foods, but, well, you know, they might not be able to tuck in Whole Foods today in this no, climate. Th- that, that's true. They are still hiring a whole bunch of people and working on AI, though. But point taken uh, yeah, on that. And so, Mark Schmulik, uh, can you put some numbers to that? Are you factoring in things like uh, Libra and crypto plans being pushed out, the ways that, uh, you know, Facebook might be hesitant uh, to be aggressive in ways that they have in the past. Uh, you know, slow down an M&A. Is that in your model as a bear case? And if so, uh, what does that do uh, to the stock? Yeah, um, you know, we, we certainly factor it in, especially the lack of M&A, as Jason alluded to. It, it's one of the primary ways Facebook is, uh, has grown to date. Uh, you know, and even uh, Giphy, you know, the, the, the small application is still very much stuck in the UK CMA. And, you know, they're having a tough time getting that through. Um, you know, so, so it's certainly baked in in terms of where does growth come from? How do you drive further engagement uh, as typically acquisitions been a way to drive it in the past? Now, are we factoring in, uh, you know, uh, ancillary revenues from things like payments, Libra, et cetera? Uh, mostly not. The only one that we are actually baking into our model is, is e-commerce related revenues as they built up shops. And, you know, what we know as of now, starting in July next year, they'll be charging a 5% take rate for the most part on sales tied to shops. Um, so that is something that we factored, and that feels like a more near-term real revenue that we can look at as a new revenue stream, non-advertising, uh, that we do bake into tomorrow. But outside of that, everything tied to kind of Libra, ARVR, et cetera, uh, we, we really haven't. It's what, you know, we don't really want to count chickens before they hatch here. Hey, Jason, I'm curious to know, yeah. uh, short of any large-scale M&A, what to you would signify the all-clear uh, to go long these shares, where you come in and say yum-yum on Facebook once again? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I sold mine at 100, and I think 10, because I just couldn't stomach being a shareholder in the company given their behavior. But, um, you know, I think if you saw behavior from them uh, that looks responsible and maybe not attacking the messenger, releasing all the research and saying, here's our algorithm, here's how it operates. And uh, yeah, we're going to take some short term hits here and changing that algorithm. And here's the parental controls, you know, actual behavior. With Facebook, it's very important to look at their actual behavior and their behavior. Whenever they hit a fork in the road, they pick the decision that grows the business, not that's in the best interest of society, voting, uh, the search for truth, people's best uh, interest in mental health. They've always taken the wrong path. And so if we actually saw behavior, not talk, not, you know, uh, you know, uh, being pulled before Congress or the Senate, like if we actually saw them change the product a little bit and that would be to me a, a signal that maybe they're being more responsible and then maybe they would be allowed to do more bold projects or M&A. So that, that to me is the, is the key. Um, and, and you just haven't seen it except for, I will give them credit that, you know, Mosari from Instagram was like, hey, maybe we'll age gate the service or put timeouts on it or maybe give parents some controls. And I would look very specifically at can the parents turn off a child's Instagram account? Do they say, you know what, Instagram's for 15 and above, 16 and above, 17 and above? Did they do something really concrete like that? That would be, uh, and them shutting off Instagram kids, I don't give them any credit for that. The only reason they turned that off is because they got called out on it. And that's the nature of this company. They'll make the wrong decision, they'll go for growth, they'll behave badly. Until somebody says, no, you, you can't do that. And, and I think that's why people well, are getting frustrated with them. 
Well, Jason, you've just sort of laid out what you would want to see in order to be bullish on this company long term. But I have to ask what you think is actually going to happen and whether now you think the whistleblower talking to the oversight board could be the moment that actually drives change in the kind of behavior that you are hoping to see here. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm uh, reticent to think that this is the turning point, even though it feels different, because I think, you know, as long as Zuckerberg's running the company, they're going to make uh, bad decisions uh, for society, and they're going to make great decisions for themselves. And so I, I, I don't like to touch the company and be involved in it just because I find their approach to building product uh, to be a bad one for society. And I, I, it does feel different this time. But, you know, we've said that before. When we saw this huge $5 billion fine and the FTC is after them again for the second, the third time, Cambridge Analytica, we keep thinking that something will change Zuckerberg's behavior. And the fact is he controls the company. The governance of the company is Zuckerberg. He's going to do what he wants. And what he wants to do is just grow the business. And I think he's got a very cavalier attitude about it. You know, the fact that he's out sailing and you know, uh, make, I don't know if you saw him making fun of like journalists because they got his wave board incorrect, uh, you know, in terms of what kind of make it was. It, it's just he doesn't take it seriously. And, you know, I, for me, maybe he gets burnt out of dealing with this and being the most hated guy, uh, you know, in uh, the technology space and changes his behavior. But I haven't seen it and I'll believe it when I see it. Well, well, Zuckerberg is a controlling shareholder of the company. We can't forget that. But Mark, yeah, I want to give you the final word here. How do you respond? How do you respond to Jason's concerns and criticism of the company? Yeah, look, I'll, I'll respectfully disagree. Um, you know, I think what we we forget is, you know, Cambridge Analytica was a big thing until uh, it wasn't. And recent data suggests that a lot of the, the media headlines were overblown on what it actually was. Um, you know, we, we look back at, uh, you know, the algorithm change in late 2018. And you know, I remember seeing a, a company presentation at that time that says, you know, the worst thing that we've seen that affects mental behavior is lurking on the platform. And so what we see drives engagement is posts from people that, you know, now, look, certainly engagement's still the North Star. We shouldn't forget that. Um, but part of what allowed them to change the algorithm to begin with was this idea that, you know, engagement from friends and family actually improves your mental behavior. Now, what we what we obviously don't know is the kind of unintended consequences of any changes that we make. And, and I think we're seeing that. Uh, kind of laid out in the most recent iteration. Um, but I think it's unfair to say that they haven't been proactive, that they don't care about it. I think, you know, in their view, it's a noble quest to connect the world, but it's also unprecedented. No one's tried it before. No one's done it before. Uh, and so we're kind of learning as we go. And every time we try to change it or they try to change it, uh, you know, we may end up in a situation with more unintended consequences. There's a, you know, we, we, we talk about the oversight committee. It's something Facebook's been asking for and set up themselves uh, because they don't want to be in the moderation business. They don't want to be making decisions on, you know, what types of content, who can post and where and when. What they really want to do is really simple, which is, hey, let's just connect the world. Um, you know, we can argue whether that's you know good for society or not. Uh, yeah, it's um, it is a responsibility for sure. Uh, it just depends on how they want to handle it. Well, we're going to watch it closely as we bounce off the uh, 200 day today. Uh, Jason, Mark, thanks so much, guys. Appreciate it. Great. Cheers, Nim. Thanks for having thanks. me. Well, that was a lot of Facebook, but we've got some other stocks to take a look at. Uh, two major upgrades today for both Square and Airbnb. Which one belongs in your portfolio? Maybe both. That's next. Tech Check. Just getting started. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? 
At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? <clears throat> the real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. I personally think that Bitcoin is worthless, but I don't want to be a spokesman. I don't care. It makes no difference to me. I don't think you should smoke cigarettes either. You know, but now it comes into like, okay, that's JB, now JP Morgan. I, our clients are adults. They disagree. That's what makes markets. So if they want to have access to buy or sell Bitcoin, you know, we, it's hard, we can't custody it, but we can give them legitimate, as clean as possible access. I was Jamie Dimon yesterday reiterating his skepticism around Bitcoin as the crypto hit its highest level since early May. It's up over a thousand percent since Dimon originally called the coin a fraud back in 2017 and up 30 percent uh, just this month. Interesting, guys, to see some of the big banks sort of alter or pivot around their policies. In this case, Dimon saying, look, personally, it's not my trade, but that doesn't mean I can't provide the service to clients. Carl, I think Jamie Dimon's just having fun with us. At this point, this is this is like him saying the Rolling Stones are just a blues cover band, right? Uh, as McCartney told the New Yorker, <laughs> well, is that what you mean? <laughs> yes, and I I know you're a Stones fan, but uh, you know the, the Bitcoin folks, the crypto folks, get very uh, you know um, worked up about that kind of a take, Julia. I I think it's important to really look at what your own thesis is on something. Every time I express even, you know, neutrality on Bitcoin, I get like a dozen Twitter people offering to educate me on Bitcoin. That's not the issue. Like, have your own thesis on what this thing is worth, why it's going to the moon if you think it's going to the moon, or how far you think it's going to go when it pulls back, sort of what it's pegged to, and then just stick with that. Jamie Dimon's got his thesis. He thinks it's worthless, so he's staying away. More money for you, I guess. He's got, he's got his thesis. I don't think he's just being provocative. I do think he really believes that. But it's just fascinating to watch the rest of the world change around him, you know, since he made those original comments on Bitcoin. And now he has to serve his customers. It's, it's a changing world out there. Yeah. Well, well, I think that Paul McCartney actually thinks that the Beatles were better than the Rolling Stones, too. I think that's his legit. <laughs> I think that's true. But uh, anyway, time for a reality check on two different upgrades of the morning. First off, Square, Jack Dorsey's Neobank getting an upgrade to overweight from Atlantic equities. The firm points toward multiple factors, including Cash App, praising its rapid growth throughout the pandemic and expecting $3.8 billion in gross profits from the payment platform through 2023. Atlantic also praises the company's buy now, pay later acquisition after pay, eyeing 40% growth through 2023. And on the flip side, we have Airbnb, which Cowan upgrades to outperform as they expect the pandemic boost for alternative accommodations to remain post-COVID. The firm estimates Airbnb is going to grab more than 50% of the alternative lodging market share among global online travel agents this year and sees bookings only going higher, expecting more than 100% 
year-over-year growth that's doubling to $48 billion this year and $126 billion by 2026. Carl, I think the real question here is the difference between products and platforms. Square's you know, unquestionably done great stuff with Cash App. I think the potential tie-ins with Afterpay are interesting. But is this a platform or are these individual product successes that don't necessarily build on one another? I don't think it's clear. Yeah. Uh, the Airbnb call is also f- really fascinating when you couple it with some of the encouraging commentary from like American Airlines this morning, Julia, about the holiday travel season. But they're way, way above consensus on bookings and EBITDA uh, for 22. Uh, and their target goes from 160 to 220. It's a big call today from Cowan. It's a big call. And the question is, what happens when people want to start traveling to places where maybe there are a lot more hotels than there are Airbnbs? And you think about the return of the hotel business. Obviously, business travel is a whole nother question. And that is something that Airbnb hasn't participated in. But you have to think, you know, user behavior has really changed during the pandemic. A lot of people discovered Airbnb. But does some of that business just shift back to the more traditional hotel market. And I think if you look at these two companies, they have both benefited a huge amount from the digital transformation that's been accelerated during the pandemic. But the question I would ask of both of them is how big is their competitive moat? Different types of products, different size moats. Uh, It seems to me also that Airbnb was well positioned heading into this with some of that like home cooked meal uh, and experiential stuff that they were building in to uh, their travel offerings. That seems very much in line with what people want coming out of a pandemic. So, uh, you know, my, my outside take versus Square, the tie-ins seem a little bit clearer there. Yeah, it'll be fascinating to see how it all plays out. I've, uh, I've embraced both of those tools personally during the pandemic, both Square and Airbnb. Now, meanwhile, Salesforce, Twilio, Coupa, Piper Sandler has new money stock ideas in cloud. That report exclusively on TechTech is next. So don't go anywhere. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. (laughs) That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. (laughs) I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Welcome back to Tech Check. We are resetting here near the bottom of the hour. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Julia Boyston and John Fort. Markets are getting pushed and pulled here. Mixed. Nasdaq's the only name in the red as value continues to outperform growth ahead of uh, earnings season kicking off in earnest tomorrow with the banks. Let's get a news update with Rahel Solomon. Hi, Rahel. Hi, Carl. Good morning. And here's what's happening at this hour. Job openings in the U.S. fell by more than 650,000 in August, but companies are still seeking to fill 10.4 million positions. MGM Resorts, the biggest gainer in the S&P 500 today, jumping as much as 8%. The stock surging after Credit Suisse upgraded it to outperform and more than doubled MGM's price target to $68 a share. Fastenal's up almost 4% at near its highs of the day. Earnings and revenues were roughly in line with estimates. Much of the sales gains were driven by price increases, although gross margins are down from 2019 levels. And pharmaceutical giant GlaxoSmithKline is up almost as much as 2.5% today. The company says that it is firmly on track to sell its consumer health unit by the middle of next year. 
consumer business could fetch $50 billion or more. The unit's brands include Advil, Nexium, and Sensodyne. You're now up to date. John, I'll send it back to you. Rahel, thank you. And uh, cloud season is upon us. Google's Cloud Next conference kicking off in less than an hour. CER Sundar Pichai, Cloud Chief Thomas Curian speak at noon. And uh, more ahead from names like Amazon and Microsoft as big contracts for next year get negotiated. Our next guest is out with his latest cloud tracker analysis of the 80 largest cloud software pure plays. With us now is Piper Sandler's Brent Braceland. Brent, good to have you. First of all, on uh, Google's necessary moves as it's kind of the, the, the third place hyperscaler right now. It sort of had this reputation of being uh, a, a unit with good technology, Google Cloud that is, but really not great go to market as far as solving problems for the user. Is your sense that uh, that enterprise engagement has gotten better for Google, that it's really growing its ecosystem and ability to compete here or no? 100%. I think you need to realize that it takes about a decade to create a $10 billion cloud infrastructure business. I think TK joining uh, Google has done a phenomenal job. Uh, obviously, you have that TK2000 really targeting some of the largest enterprises out there, very focused uh, kind of go-to-market effort uh, that's changed uh, their success uh, on the uh, cloud front for sure. That now business is scaled to north of $10 billion. We've expected to continue to, to scale uh, at a fast clip. Obviously, you're competing with two other big cloud platforms, Microsoft and, and AWS, that uh, certainly are much, much larger in scale. But uh, Google's making up some, uh, some ground there for sure. Now, in your report, looking at some of these highest conviction new money cloud ideas to buy on the pullback, a couple of them, Twilio and Coupa, one could argue have already sort of been pulling back. They haven't done that much over the past year, but they're interesting, you know, Coupa uh, from the cost management side, Twilio from that sort of infrastructure of a digital transaction side. Uh, are those underappreciated now? What do you think drives them? Yeah, absolutely. In, in cloud software, we've been talking about this cloud transition for a decade. So a lot of these cloud software names are, have high valuations. Uh, they, they are well appreciated. What you have to do is go where there's controversy. And I, there's some controversy around Twilio. There's controversy around Coupa. That creates opportunity. And I think those two assets are mispriced on Twilio. We think Twilio is the next $10 billion cloud asset. We just talked about Google getting that threshold. We think Twilio could actually become a $10 billion business before Snowflake, and that's a $100 billion-plus business today. Market cap at Twilio is only $57 billion, and we think it'll get to $10 billion in revenue before Atlassian. So we do think that uh, this whole direct-to-consumer uh, tailwinds driving Twilio will continue to kind of make that a much bigger business than people are giving it credit for today. Brent, you make the incredible point that the number of cloud stocks with uh, better than 40% growth has tripled. Uh, we all know it from watching the IPO market and the new issues here and at the NASDAQ. Um, are there too many companies? Can the street reasonably research all of these effectively? Um, or do you think that there's bandwidth for that? It's getting harder. I'm not going to lie to you on that front. But listen, I think uh, while you have these household names, Microsoft, Google, Amazon, those eventually could consolidate the space over time. We think there's a, a, a long tail opportunity here where uh, even though maybe 80% of the market's controlled by the big five, the alpha creation is going to happen in the 20% of the market, which uh, requires basically a little bit more homework. But I think there's great opportunity in the long tail of cloud software. Don't, don't forget, most enterprises have, large enterprises have a thousand different applications. 
So that's a lot of opportunity to create differentiation there. And what we're seeing is now this convergence of cloud software and payments that's opening up all sorts of new avenues for growth. Yeah, Brent, you really lay out the bull case here for the sector and particularly for those five companies. But I'm wondering what you see as the biggest risk to the cloud sector and which companies are most at risk to whatever those factors are. Listen, we're talking about a market that has taken a decade to get to about 10% penetration. The penetration of cloud today of the enterprise spend overall is about 13%. We think similar to, to e-commerce, that penetration rate is going to go from 13 to over 50% penetration by the end of the decade. So great runway of opportunity. The risk lies in valuation. Uh, you have to really pick your spots carefully here in this cloud software group because People are confident in the profit potential of these business models. They're high gross margin models. Uh, the most mature companies generating 30, 40% free cash flow margins. And so people are willing to underwrite five, six years of duration risk. And so you really have to pick your spots carefully given uh, if there's a rise in interest rates, which we've seen, this group will absolutely come um, down from a multiple perspective. So you have to pick your spots Brent, carefully in this group. What's the worst area in cloud software, either because the, the growth isn't going to be there or because the valuation's gotten way out of control? You know, listen, I, I think there's a little bit of a crowded space in front office. Uh, that's really where you're seeing some uh, a lot of proliferation of new ideas. We're actually quite bullish around back office. It's been a laggard in cloud. And so that's the area that we're most focused on, driving a change. Listen, there's a talent shortage, uh, and you have to automate uh, because you can't hire. And uh, that back office space is probably the hottest space. I think front office might cool down a little bit. All right, front office. Uh, I like a specific answer. I appreciate it. Brent, thank you. <laughs> no problem. And keep an eye on Tesla. The company is selling its largest monthly total of vehicles in China since it started production in Shanghai two years ago. And after the break, one family lost $700,000 in cryptocurrencies. And now they tell us they can't get anyone to do anything about it. That CNBC investigation is next. Tech Check will be right back. NVIDIA, AMD, Marvell, Broadcom, which semi is the one to own? Kramer's got some ideas. You can join CNBC's investing club, get daily emails straight to your inbox, Jim's exclusive insights into the market. Just go to CNBC.com or scan the QR code on your screen to learn more. Tech Check is back in a minute. As investing in cryptocurrency has skyrocketed, so have major problems in keeping those investments safe. Customers of Coinbase, the country's largest crypto platform, are angry with the company's customer support, which is supposed to help uh, provide help, but has led to more frustration. Eamon Javers has that story for us in a CNBC investigation, Crypto Nightmare. I was kind of, like, panicked, to tell you the truth. Eric and Molly Richardson say they saved nearly $1.1 million worth of cryptocurrency in a Coinbase account. But then in July, Eric got an alert on his phone. 
The message said someone had logged onto their account. Eric clicked on the text, logged in, and soon received an email that their two-factor authentication, which verifies security settings, had been changed. He was like in a state of shock, so I tried to help him. I tried to stay calm, and I you know, looked up Coinbase online, trying to figure out how to get a hold of their customer service. Like thousands of other Coinbase customers, the Richardsons say they got nowhere when they tried to get immediate help. That's because the company didn't offer any kind of live phone support. Email was the only option. And within the 20 minutes that we sent the email, somebody had done 110 different transactions, sending out about 21 Bitcoin. In all, the hackers stole some $700,000 of the couple's savings. They're not the only ones. As CNBC reported in August, cryptocurrency holders across the country have been victimized by hackers who drain their accounts. And then they can't even get anyone on the phone to resolve the issue. Coinbase said in August that it had finally set up a phone number for customers to call if their account had been taken over. But that doesn't seem to be fixing the problem. Customers told us the live support was useless, a joke, and it was only for accounts that are actively locked. So we wanted to see what would happen when the Richardsons called Coinbase's new customer support line. I'm going to call and see if I can get my account finally unlocked. And maybe should I ask if they will give me my money back? A Coinbase agent does answer. Well, I got locked out of my account um, about two months ago, and I haven't been able to get back in. Somebody stole 21 Bitcoin out of it. The agent tells Richardson he actually doesn't have access to his case file, instead saying he should respond to a Coinbase email he'd already responded to. A Coinbase spokesperson says, we recognize the challenges some of our customers have experienced with their Coinbase accounts. Improving our customer experience continues to remain a top priority. Eric says his big regret is not doing more to safeguard his Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Chainlink before the theft, which he thinks happened because that text alert was likely a phishing attack to steal his information. One option he considered but didn't follow up on was a hardware device used for cold storage of cryptocurrencies. I'm beating myself up every day because I have my friend's voices in my head. Eric put it on cold storage and I just didn't. Nicole DeSico, who helps clients secure their cryptocurrency, says cold storage is virtually hack-proof. You get a private key, which is like a password, to buy and sell crypto, and you store that key offline. When you keep your funds in cold storage, you own those funds, you have access to them, they're offline, away from hackers. Of course, the problem with even that solution is owners can lose their passwords, or something can go wrong with the device itself. As far as the Richardsons, soon after our interview, Coinbase restored access to their account. They also received a credit from Coinbase, but nowhere near what they lost. Just $500 worth of Bitcoin. It felt like they kicked sand in my face. That's what made me think, is there even anybody senior at Coinbase looking at this? Coinbase told the Richardsons it won't refund their savings because the company was not responsible for the hack. Customers have filed more than 12,000 complaints against the company with government and consumer agencies since 2016. Meanwhile, an additional 1,500 complaints have been filed since our story first aired in August, mostly over customer service. Back to you. So, Eamon, what happens next? All of those complaints filed, but is someone going to take action? Is one of these agencies going to hold Coinbase accountable? 
Look, it's really not clear, Julia. For customers like the Richardsons, there might not be any good option to get their Bitcoin back. Uh, and that's because a lot of this falls within a, a regulatory gray area here in Washington, D.C. You know, is this uh, a security for the Securities and Exchange Commission to regulate? Is it a commodity for the CFTC to regulate? Does Treasury have oversight uh, in terms of banking regulations? None of that has really been sorted through effectively in Washington. There are real disputes over uh, which agency would even have say over any of this. So for now, there's really no government help on the way. And remember, a lot of people who uh, invest in Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies generally don't want the government to, to regulate this. They don't want any oversight in terms of what they're doing. Part of the reason why they're doing that uh, is to be free of the traditional banking system. In this case, though, the traditional banking system has some advantages like FDIC, FDIC insurance and the like. That would mean that if something like this happened in banking, the customer wouldn't face the loss. And the Richardsons are facing a big loss here. Yeah. Uh, meanwhile, Eamon, I'm fascinated by the consultant you talked to uh, who helps clients manage their crypto security. And, and in, in the wake or in the absence of that regulation, you see these ancillary industries cropping up to fill the need. Yeah, and there's a huge need, Carl. I mean, if you just go on Reddit's uh, page dealing with Coinbase and some of these other uh, exchanges out there, you know, you just see page after page after page of posts from people desperate for help uh, of what to do uh, in terms of getting coin, uh, cryptocurrencies back that they've lost. A lot of people posting that they've seen their accounts drain. They don't know what to do or where to turn. One thing I would caution, though, is you have to be careful in that market as well. It seems like there are scammers at work in that market as well, offering solutions here that might not be all they're cracked up to be. So this is a dangerous area as well. Yeah, certainly, Eamon, seems like there are risks at every turn. Thanks for bringing that to us today. And a quick programming note as we head to break. Don't miss CNBC's At Work Summit tomorrow, where executives from WeWork, Dell, Netflix, and more will chat the future of work. Register now at cnbcevents.com slash worksummit. Tech Tech is back in a moment. After the break, we're going to focus on new approaches in the workplace, but what about in education? Well, I talked with presidents from three historically black colleges yesterday in my monthly Fort Knox March 4th live stream. Virginia State University President Makola Abdullah talked about the impact of last year's surprise $30 million donation from Mackenzie Scott, which came without many strings attached. We're terribly excited about the, the gift from Mackenzie Scott. Um, you asked to talk about the engagement, uh, if I'm being uh, very honest, uh, the letter that she wrote to talk about her investment in HBCUs is the, is the full summation uh, of her engagement. And our job now is to do a good job with the funds that she gave uh, so that we can prove to her that we are a quality return on investment. Now, in, uh, a way, in a way, that might be good because some people have a lot of engagement and give a little bit of money. Brother, who are you talking about? You, you, you talking to the choir. <laughs> yeah. Here's what's funny. Her impact has been way bigger than the money. Uh, because it's allowed us to go out and say, well, look, I, I want $2 million from you. I got $30 million, uh from McKinsey Scott. So that money allowed them to be more flexible. You can catch the full conversation online on Tech Check's Twitter account. Tech Check, we'll be right back.
Amazon announcing it'll be giving some of its workers more flexibility to work from home indefinitely. And CNBC partnered with Catalyst on a new survey just out today that explains why Amazon is doing this. And the results are a wake-up call for corporate America. More than half of employed American parents of school-age children and over 40% of all employed Americans say they are considering leaving their jobs. They cite their employer's lack of concern for their well-being. We also found a stark disconnect between what employees want and what their employers tell them that they need. About three quarters of employed Americans say their employer believes that employees are just more innovative and work harder when they are in the office. But even more employed people say they would like their company to make work permanently flexible. And though there were consistent themes, we did find some striking differences between how men and women are reacting to the pandemic. Employed men are much more likely than employed women to say that they're considering leaving their job because their company or manager has not cared about their concerns during the pandemic. And men are more likely than women to say they intend to make changes in their career, such as asking for a raise or starting a company. So we'll have to see if more companies follow Amazon's lead and retreat from their office-centric work plans, John, in light of these pretty dramatic numbers showing just how much people don't want to go back to business as usual. Yeah, I wonder how much of it is permanent, though. Amazon's still saying you got to stay within commute distance, Carl, of the office uh, or ask for approval to move further away from that. Some of this feels like it might be, okay, we're willing to stay in this, you know, maybe in, maybe out flexible position for a bit longer, but that's not necessarily how it's going to be forever. Yeah, a lot of this is uh, just driven by the labor cycle that we're in, guys. Uh, maybe some of these workers are quitting because they're, uh, they have feelings about their personal health, or maybe they're just chasing higher wages, which is a big part of it. I did wonder, though, John, on this Amazon news and, and sort of pushing that, punting it to the, the local manager, how much of that is truly softening Andy Jassy's original position, which he told you, which is that innovation happens at work, pretty much uh, cut and dried. Well, I think they're still figuring it out. You know, as I was seeing that news, I was thinking about when he and I were uh, coming back into Amazon headquarters after a chat outside. He was noting, you know, sort of how certain businesses hadn't opened up yet. And Seattle in general was trying to figure out what foot uh, to, to lead with, given what was happening with Delta. And then we had Satya Nadella on just a couple weeks earlier, pushing further out uh, what, what they were going to do at Microsoft. So I think there's still just a lot of questions, not only about what workers want, but what's practical at this stage, Carl. Yeah, uh, for sure. And what technologies allowed them to do. By the way, I'm told that uh, Andy Jassy's 100th day uh, in the chair is tomorrow. We're going to talk about that on Tech Check as we brace for CPI, retail sales, sales still to come, and of course, J.P. Morgan earnings in the morning. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.